Episcopal Church till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. But the infants of such as are members of the visible church are to be baptized. Acts 2.41 Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. Acts 2.41 Very good. So you are very well aware our church has a policy of liberty of conscience on this particular matter. We do not require families to bring their children for baptism. I think I mentioned last week that many Presbyterian denominations in their book of church order, technically, so for example, I know the the book of church order for the PCA, if a family does not bring their children for baptism, that is grounds for church discipline. Now, I don't think that's ever been carried out. I have asked some PCA people uh, ministers and people that have are far, far, far more familiar with the PCA church than I am, if they know of any case of that ever happening, and nobody says that they do know of a case of that ever happening, um, but at the same time they don't know of a case of a family not bringing their kids for baptism, so it might be irrelevant. Um, so the catechism answer is very clear. We are not to baptize conscious unbelievers. That's the way our denomination has phrased uh, our policy on baptism. So we practice infant baptism, um, but a decision was made a long time ago, back in 2007, I guess. Um, We do not practice household baptism which is a little bit different situation. There are many other Presbyterian churches that do practice household baptism. I'll try to be very brief. For example, let's say you have a man and his wife in their mid-30s, and they have a 12-year-old, a 6-year-old, and a 1-month-old. And that family, the husband and wife, are converted to Christ, and and they've trusted Christ. They believe the gospel. And they begin to study seriously the issues of what they need to know, and they come to the session of the church, and they say, we want to be baptized, and we want our children to be baptized. Well, the adults would be baptized upon their profession of faith in Christ, um, but the 12-year-old, the 6-year-old, would not be baptized, they're not infants, unless, unless they made their own personal profession of faith in Christ. Um, but yet the one-month-old would be baptized as a covenant baptism. I know that's very confusing, um, but that's the situation. So you can ask me questions about that later. Um, but that's briefly all I'm going to say about that. So let's quote it again, and then the younger classes can be dismissed. To whom is baptism to be administered? Baptism is not to be administered to any that are out of the visible church till they profess their faith in Christ and obedience to him. But the infants of such as are members of the visible church are to be baptized. Acts 2.41 Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. 
Acts 2.41. Okay, you younger folks can be dismissed. And maybe I need to do one of these Sunday school lessons on baptism. And we'll flesh all some of that out. So we're finished with our uh, subject of head covering. Uh, Unless somebody has any just super pressing question uh, that we need to go back and review some of those things, we're going to move on to a new topic. Um, On that subject of topics, I know that some of you asked me a few questions that you wanted dealt with in the Sunday school under this uh, series of lessons that I'm going to be doing. What does it mean? Um, I've forgotten your questions. So (laughs) please text me. Or email me your question. That way, I'll have a record of it. I can make a list someplace. Um, There's a couple of them I think I remember, but I don't know if I remember who asked it. So if you have a question you you want dealt with in Sunday school, um, please let me know, and and we'll go over some of these things. I have kind of a rough list in my own mind of things I want to deal with, um, but I also want to deal with the things that need to be dealt with, you know, questions that you have and maybe things you don't quite understand, you want explained, um, I'll do my best. So what we're going to do this morning, and I was hoping to, to just do a question that we can do quite briefly, uh, just in one time, uh, I won't be here next Sunday, uh, Pastor Kimbrough will be doing Sunday school next week, and he can pick his own topic or he can expound on this particular topic a little bit more. Uh, But I want to ask you to turn to Acts chapter 15. And so the question that we're going to deal with this morning is, what does it mean to be a Presbyterian? What does that mean? So Acts 15, we'll just read the first six verses, and um, then we'll go in it from there. So Acts 15, starting in verse number 1. And certain men, which came down from Judea, taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and Samaria, declaring the, con- the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy unto all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all things that God had done with them. But there rose up certain of the sect of the Pharisees, which believed, saying, that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider of this matter. So we'll end there at the end of verse 6. Acts chapter 15 is one of the main passages of Scripture uh, where we derive our formulation for the concept of Presbyterian church government. And so the question today is, what does it mean to be a Presbyterian? Well, I want to deal kind of with church government, because that really is the issue. Um, 
I asked some people recently, what does it mean to be a Presbyterian? And in that list that I got from them of the answer were several things that really don't have anything to do with Presbyterianism per se. Um, they're, they're different issues. Uh, they're, they're issues that Presbyterians believe, fair enough, um, but those issues don't make a person a Presbyterian. And so what is the difference? And that, that's kind of what I want to touch on. And so we'll begin by just surveying very briefly the three particular types of church government. Um, you might think there are many types of church government. There really are just three. There are versions of each of the three, but just kind of at a foundational level, there are three. Um, pop quiz here. Anybody have any idea what these are? Presbyterianism. I gave you one. Okay, so congregational is another one. Okay, yeah, Pastor Kimbrough actually said it the other, I think Sunday night, uh, I think he said it. But yes, hierarchical, that is it. So the big fancy word is prelacy. Um, you'll also sometimes see it referred to as episcopacy. Now there is the Episcopal Church, um, but the Roman Catholic Church follows prelacy, episcopacy, and so that maybe get confusing because there's not, well, there actually is a prelate church, but that's beside the point. Um, but the prelacy is the name of the form of church government. And so it is, as Christian said, a hierarchical form of government. So just as an example of some that would follow this, the Roman Catholic Church, I think, obviously, um, from the Pope, bishops, and then the priests, and so they have a, a hierarchy of authority. The United Methodist Church uh, follows prelacy. They have uh, dioceses. They have bishops that are in charge of a larger group of churches. Um, but the bishop is a person of authority over those churches. Uh, the Anglican Church, the Episcopal Church. The Episcopal Church is just the United States version of the Anglican Church in England. Um, actually, some Pentecostal denominations... Um, Especially most, I think almost all or most, of the traditionally African-American Pentecostal movements. Um, so you guys have heard of T.D. Jakes. So T.D. Jakes is Bishop T.D. Jakes. Um, they form a hierarchical form of government. Uh, he's a oneness Pentecostal. They don't believe in the Trinity. But he's in a Pentecostal group that would be prelate. Um, and Lutherans would practice prelacy. And the main distinction of a prelate form of government is a higher bishop that rules over a diocese of churches. And the bishops have, in many ways, unilateral authority over the churches in their jurisdiction. So that's one kind. Um, the, other, the next one, what Daniel mentioned, is congregational, or you often hear it referred to as independency. And so several denominations hold this. All Baptist churches are independent. Um, even the Southern Baptist Church, that is the Southern Baptist Convention, and so in the Southern Baptist you have a whole slew of churches that are all together part of a denomination. Uh, the denomination really doesn't have any power or say-so or authority 
over an individual local Southern Baptist church. Each individual church, even though it's part of a denomination and group, each individual church is still independent. One church cannot tell the other church what to do. A collection of other churches can't tell that church what to do. That church is independent, and all those other churches are independent. Now, in the Southern Baptist, for example, they recognize the need for some level of interdependence. And so in the Southern Baptist, you have the cooperative program where the missions money is funneled through. And so, like, this individual local Southern Baptist church can't support a missionary all by itself, but together with all the rest of the Southern Baptist churches can support thousands of missionaries uh, through the cooperative program, the Lottie Moon offering. People may have heard of these things. Um, Bible churches would be independent. Congregational churches, obviously there's not many of those left. There are still some up in the New England area. Some Pentecostal churches are actually independent. And then most of your, well, really all of your non-denominational churches, um, your, your community churches, you know, like Revive Church. and um, The church that you want to know, is this a church or is this a weed shop? I can't tell. Is it higher ground? Do they sell weed? Or is it a church? I don't, it's confusing. So those churches, they're all independent. So Presbyterian, this is what we care about, and this is what we are, and we believe Presbyterianism is the biblical model of church government. There's a sense in which Presbyterianism sits between those two extremes, and I call them extremes not critically, I I don't mean that from a, a critical Uh, bad perspective, there is good common sense in the fact that somebody needs to be in charge, right? So in the Roman Catholic Church, you have the Pope. The Pope's in charge. And then the Pope has delegates under him. He has cardinals, and those cardinals are in charge of bishops, and those bishops are in charge of priests, and that just makes all the sense in the world to have a structure of authority, that makes sense. Well, independency rebels against that because in the aftermath of the Reformation, the corruption of the Pope, the corruption of all these cardinals, the corruption of the church, and we start our own church independent of all that corruption, and then five years later they're corrupt. So whatever it is it make. Um, but you have those two extremes of Hierarchy and independency. So, Presbyterianism. So, the distinctions of Presbyterianism are several, and so let me give you some of the main points here of Presbyterianism. First, each local congregation is part of a larger group of congregations that's referred to as what? Who knows what that's called? What? It's called a presbytery. So I'd like for some of the younger, like teenagers, to answer, um, kind of aiming at you guys to make sure you understand what you're a part of and what you are. Um, but yeah, a presbytery, right? So the the collection of churches in the denomination are all part of a presbytery. So that's one distinction. The local congregations are governed by church officers, and so we're not governed by a board of directors. 
We're not governed by a group of people completely separated from us in a completely different place. Uh, each local congregation is governed by church officers. So we have two different offices in the church. What are those offices? Who knows what those are? Okay, elders and deacons. Now, the elders and deacons are elected by all of the people that are members of that local congregation. So each member in the congregation has a vote in electing their local officers. So let's turn over to Acts chapter 6. Let's see this, how this works. Acts 6, verse 1. And in those days when the number of the disciples was multiplied. Now, when it says disciples there, we, we need to understand this in the New Testament. So in the Gospels, like Peter and James and John were disciples, right? Well, the word disciple there is really just the idea of a follower, okay? So when it says disciples in Acts chapter 6, it's really talking about now church member, understand just follower of Jesus. Those that have been converted, they're not of the original 11 plus Matthias makes 12. They're not of that 12 apostles, a different group of people. These disciples, when the number of the followers of Jesus were multiplied, there arose a murmuring of the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Then the twelve, so that is the original eleven plus Matthias, called the multitude of the followers of Jesus unto them and said, It is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Wherefore, brethren, look out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And the same pleased the whole multitude. And they chose, they elected, Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Ghost, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Permanaz, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch, whom they set before the apostles, and when they had prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God increased, and the number of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. Okay, so there is the, the, the biblical model of choosing out helpers in the church. And so these men were the first deacons elected, if you will, in the, in the church. And so if we drill down here a little bit more specifically into some aspects of Presbyterian church government, on a local level, there are, as Caleb rightly said, there are deacons and there are elders. Now, there's a difference in those two offices. The deacons, in, in combination with the elders, form a church, a local church governing body that's referred to as what? Who knows what that's called? The deacons and the elders together. What do they form? Not the session. The deacons and the elders form what's called the committee. So the committee, deacons and elders together, the deacons primarily, along with the elders, but the deacons primarily, 
are responsible for all of the practical oversight of the church. Uh, they are responsible for financial decisions of the church. They are responsible for the grounds, maintenance, all those things. That is the responsibility of the deacons. Now, in our particular local church, um, we've had some irregularity with that um, for a long, long time. Um, but that irregularity is recognized um, and, and dealt with in, in many different ways. We have one deacon. We have three elders. Now, that puts us locally here in a little bit of a, of a unique situation because, you know, say, let's just say, for example, the practical matters of the church. Okay, so you ladies, I don't know what you do to the toilet back there, but you've had toilet problems for months, right? So um, practically what happens here? Somebody comes and inevitably talks to me or Lydia comes and talks to me. I know how to fix a toilet. There's nothing wrong with that, right? There's nothing wrong with that. And don't not come talk to me. But theoretically, right, theoretically, we're supposed to go to Kevin with toilet problems. Well, but, but, but this is what's going to happen. Kevin is just going to come to me, right? Kevin just comes to me. So cut out the middleman, right? Just cut out the middleman. Right. But you know, we get stuff fixed, right? So, um, you know, today we had light bulbs out, and we had Andrew on it. Andrew is not a deacon, but he was called on to help, right? So... You know, theoretically, that's supposed to be how it all works. There are irregularities to all that. But when we have financial decisions, we have, we have quarterly finance meetings, and uh, we get a financial report, and we go over all the numbers. If it comes to something that the church needs to purchase, you know, when we purchase the computer equipment for streaming, we do all those kinds of things. It's not Pastor Kimbrough just says, hey, go buy a new computer. I don't have the authority to do that by myself. Jim can't do that by himself. And technically, the three of us can't do that without Kevin. Because that's just the structure of the government of how it works. And so you have the deacon as part of the committee in charge of finances and the practical needs of the church. Now, when we come to elders, that's a different group. And so the elders of the local church form what group, Matthew? The session, right? You knew the right answer to the wrong question. Um, so the elders collectively form what's called the session. And so the session are, is the group of men that have the responsibility for the spiritual oversight of the church. So, you know, when you, if someone wants to join the church, uh, you don't come and speak to the whole committee you speak just to the session, uh, those that are responsible for that spiritual oversight. Now, turn over to 1 Timothy chapter 5. 1 Timothy 5. Now, there are two kinds of elders. Does anybody know what the names of the two kinds of elders are? Hudson. A ruling elder and a teaching elder. There's a ruling elder and a teaching elder. So, Hudson, let me ask you this question. 
Can a ruling elder teach? Yes. Okay. Can a teaching elder rule? Yes. Okay, so what in the world's the difference between a teaching elder and a ruling elder? So let me, get you, let me show you where we get the concept of the different distinctions between the two kinds of elders. So that's in 1 Timothy 5.17. 1 Timothy 5, verse 17, it says, Let the elders that rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially they who labor in the word and doctrine. And so from that verse, we get the idea that all elders are in charge of oversight, ruling. All elders are in charge of that. But not all elders have the task of laboring in the word and doctrine in that more specific way. And so that's where we get the idea of ruling elders versus teaching elders. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, when we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 about he that desires the office of a bishop, now, again, don't we? it's easy to get confused on that because we just talked about prelacy, and in prelacy they have bishops, well, we don't have bishops, but yet the Bible tells us that there's people that ought to desire the office of a bishop. Um, but that word bishop uh, is really the word for an elder, presbyter, um, and, and that's the Greek word presbyteros. And so that presbyter, or that bishop, as it's translated in the King James, is just one of the elders. So in 1 Timothy 3, we have what the Bible teaches us about the qualifications for the office of an elder, and later on in chapter 3, the qualifications for the office of a deacon. Uh, but for the office of an elder, it says that if to be qualified to be an elder, you are to be apt to teach. Apt to teach. It doesn't say that you must teach. It just says you need to have the ability to understand the word of God and to be able to speak to someone about the contents of scripture. Uh, you need to have a, a, a biblical level of understanding that is beyond that of a novice, because it specifically says that one is not to be a novice. And so an elder doesn't necessarily mean a man who is older. Uh, the word elder and older, the, the connotation is not there. It practically works out that in many times an elder is older. Um, but, for example... We, our most recent ordination was of, this will get very confusing, of Logan Elder, who was ordained as an elder. Um, doesn't have anything to do with his last name. Um, but he's like 24 years old. So he's not older, but he's an elder. He's an elder elder. <laughs> very confusing. Um, so those two kinds of elders. We have ruling elders and we have teaching elders. Now, uh, another peculiarity of Presbyterian church government, a ruling elder, so Jim in our church is the only ruling elder, Jim is a member of Grace Free Presbyterian Church. And so the next election we have, if we have another election for deacons, or if somewhere down the road we have another election for an elder, Jim, as a member of Grace Free Presbyterian Church, would vote in that election. He has a vote in the election, just as any other member in the congregation has a vote in that election. Now, another difference is, don't ever do anything wrong, Jim. But if Jim ever does anything wrong, you know, sinfully wrong, 
that would require church discipline, Jim would be disciplined in the session of Grace Free Presbyterian Church. And his discipline would be handled there. Now, a teaching elder is different in that a teaching elder is one who is eligible to receive a call to be the minister of another congregation. So, for example, we have um, a church in British Columbia that doesn't have a pastor. Well, they can't call Jim to be their pastor. Jim's an elder, but not a teaching elder. He's a ruling elder. They could call Pastor Kimbrough to be their pastor. They could call me to be their pastor as a teaching elder. Um, now, let me give you another illustration here. So Greg, all right, so Greg taught this Sunday school class for years and years and years and years and years. He was an elder and obviously was able to teach. He, he literally did teach every single Sunday, but he was not a teaching elder. He was not one that would have been able to receive a call to be the minister of another church. Um, so if someone is a minister, they are a teaching elder. All teaching elders are also ministers, or in my case, assistant, uh, associate, assistant, whatever, minister. So another distinction here is that a teaching elder is not a member of the local church. So Pastor Kimbrough and myself, we are not members of Grace Free Presbyterian Church. So when we had the deacon election, Pastor Kimbrough and I, we don't vote. When we had the elder election, Pastor, I did not vote for you, Jim. Okay. So Pastor Kimbrough and I, I would have voted for you, but I did not vote for you. But Pastor Kimbrough and I don't vote. We're not members of this local church. And so if I ever do anything wrong, or if Pastor Kimbrough ever does anything wrong that would require or rise to the level of church discipline, we are not disciplined by Grace Free Presbyterian Church. We would be disciplined by the presbytery. So it's not that I'm not a member of a church. I am a member of a church. I'm a member of the Free Presbyterian Church of North America. Pastor Kimbrough is a member of the Free Presbyterian Church of North America. And so we would be disciplined by the entire presbytery. Now, the presbytery is made up of all of the ruling and teaching elders of all the churches in the denomination form the presbytery. Now, some of you have come from PCA or OPC or you are more familiar with some other uh, denominations that way. Many Presbyterian churches go another step higher, but not hierarchical. Um, they have local presbyteries. So, for example, the PCA has, I think, four or five presbyteries in North Carolina. They have four or five presbyteries in South Carolina. They would have probably six or seven presbyteries in Georgia, several presbyteries in Alabama. And those local presbyteries would meet. And so, you know, let's say, you know, from Winston-Salem, maybe part of Charlotte, you know, maybe it's a triad presbytery. I don't know, I'm just making this up. But maybe like a triad presbytery. So all of the PCA churches in the triad would form the triad presbytery. And they would meet every month for various things. And then annually, they have what they call a general assembly. And so the general assembly is all of the presbyteries meeting together. Um, but every elder 
of all the churches in that presbytery are part of that presbytery, and all of the elders of all those churches in the presbytery are also part of a general assembly. Um, and that's just pragmatic. It's just practical for the fact that it's difficult to meet all over the country. Our denomination faces some of the same problems. We have our presbytery meetings not monthly, um, but every May and every October we have our presbytery meetings. And we have still functioned as an entire North American presbytery. And so we have churches in Canada, we have churches in the United States, we have churches in Mexico, and now we have a church in the Dominican Republic. We're all part of one presbytery. And it works. We, we meet you know, just those two times a year, but sometimes there are matters that are more pressing that we end up having to do votes electronically, and so the clerk, who just is in charge of the paperwork for the presbytery, um, emails things, and there's things that at the presbytery are voted on, and they're voted on with the understanding that this is going to be dealt with electronically. And so because we can't meet every month to, you know, to deal with things more, more quickly, um, they're dealt with practically that, or practically that way electronically. Now in Northern Ireland, the Free Presbyterian Church of Ulster, they have their presbytery meeting every single month. Um, but the two churches farthest away from each other are you know, a little over two-hour drive, maybe, maybe closer to three hours drive, would be the churches the farthest away from one another. So it's far more practical for them to meet monthly, and so they don't have to deal with stuff like that electronically the same way we would have to do. So all the members of all, I'm sorry, all the elders of all the churches are part of a group called the presbytery. Now, what does a presbytery do? Well, the presbytery has oversight over all the churches of the denomination. Now, there are limits to what the presbytery has oversight on. The presbytery cannot make a vote and say that Grace Free Presbyterian Church must change the color of their building. We don't like the pearl gray that you have chosen. We want you to paint your building this color of blue. Right? The Presbytery doesn't have that authority. They don't have that kind of power. But if, let's just make something up super crazy. Let's say Pastor Kimbrough this morning preaches a sermon and announces to us all that he no longer believes in the Trinity. And he's been reading for months now, secretly, and today he's coming clean with what he really believes. He doesn't believe the Trinity. Well, I hope every one of you would um, challenge that immediately, come to me as the associate, and call the moderator. Do you know, does anybody know who the moderator is? What is a moderator? Does anybody know what that is? I know Lydia, you know. I think Jan knows. I, mean, I know Jan knows. What's a moderator? What's the moderator of the Free Presbyterian Church? Hudson. The person that goes between the churches to the presbytery? No, that would be a mediator. And we don't have a mediator. I mean, Jesus is our mediator, but not that. Moderator. So another word for a moderator is just simply a chairman. Right, so a chairman. So when we have our presbytery meeting, if you ever go to a presbytery meeting, all the men are sitting out there, and there's a 
eight-foot folding table at the front, and the moderator sits here, and the clerk sits here, and then the minute secretary sits here. Right? And so the moderator is the chairman of the meeting. And so what in the world are we going to talk about? Well, the moderator has a, a list of, of things that need to be talked about. So you have the minutes, and so you read the minutes, and then you have business that arises from the minutes. So in the minutes, so-and-so church did such-and-such such a thing, and so give us a report. How'd that go? It went great. The Lord bless. Okay? Such-and-such such a church had another thing. How'd that go? It went great. It was awesome. You all should have been there. And so you go through all the minutes, and then you have new business that arises from the minutes. And so so-and-so is applying to come under care of the presbytery uh, to enter the seminary. So we interview him. And so the moderator chairs the meeting, um, says, okay, I recognize you. You can talk. Okay, now I recognize you. You can talk. He's the one that says, all in favor, say aye. All opposed by no. No opposition. Motion passes. Right. So the moderator does all that. The clerk is in charge of the paperwork for all that, is in charge of, well, the minute secretary takes minutes of everything that happens, records everything that's happening, going on through the, minute, through the meeting. And the clerk, like I say, does the paperwork for all that stuff. So the moderator is the one who chairs those meetings. And so you would call the moderator and you would say, Mr. Moderator, our pastor today preached a sermon and says he doesn't believe in the Trinity anymore. And the moderator, Jeff Bannister, he would say, I can't believe that. That's the craziest thing I've ever heard. I've known Reggie for years and years and years. He would never say such a thing. And he's like, well, no, I mean, we recorded the sermon. I'll, I'll email it to you. I'll send it to you. Listen to what he said. And so sure enough, he listens to it, and Reggie's a heretic, and they're working for matches. We're getting a pile of wood together. We're going to burn him at the stake, the whole thing. And it's reported to the presbytery. This would be like an emergency thing. And so there would be an email sent out by the clerk to all the members of the presbytery. Reggie Kimbrough's a heretic. We've got to burn him. And there would be a meeting. And Reggie, there would be what's called a judicial committee formed. And that judicial committee would be appointed by various men from the presbytery. They would be sent here post-haste, and they would meet with Reggie. They would ask him all the questions, do you really deny the Trinity? And Reggie would hem and haw, and he would say what he believes, and they'd say, you're a heretic, we're going to burn you. And they would, they would remove him from the ministry. Right. This is all crazy. He believes the Trinity. Don't tell him I told you he doesn't. He believes the Trinity. Um, <laughs> that's fine, okay. Somebody has to take the fall. Okay, so, but the presbytery has the power and the authority to step in in that situation and remove Reggie Kimbrough from the ministry of this church. He would be what's called defrocked. It's a crazy term, but that's what would happen. He would be defrocked. He would be unordained. He would, he would be removed from the pastoral ministry of this whole denomination. And then things would be put in place. There would be what's called an interim moderator would be appointed for this local church. Now, Pastor Kimbrough is the moderator of the session of Grace Free Presbyterian Church. So when we have a session meeting, Pastor Kimbrough is the moderator of that meeting. If for some reason he's ever gone, then I'm the moderator of that meeting. If we're both gone, then we can't do anything. You have to have 
somebody to be a moderator. Um, and Jim can't do things just all by himself. I can't do things by myself, and Reggie can't do things by himself. Technically, Reggie and Jim could do things by themselves, um, but we kind of have a, a house rule, we don't do that. Reggie and I could do things by ourselves, but we don't do that, because we're not, we're not prelates, right? So we had, a, we had a short little window there of, of danger when Greg resigned and Reggie and I were the only elders. And we both immediately recognized this is not safe. Right? One, it's not safe to have two, only two elders because if there's a, a disagreement, then there's no tiebreaker. And so that's not safe. That's just practically not safe. Um, but then it's also not safe to have only teaching elders um, in charge of the session of a local church. There needs to be a ruling elder. That's just practically necessary. But um, in Acts 15, we'll wrap up here in three minutes. In Acts 15, what we see happening is this dispute about whether or not it's necessary for Gentile converts to be circumcised. And Paul and Barnabas said, no, it's not necessary for these Gentile converts to be circumcised. But there were people that had come from Jerusalem, the, these converted Pharisees, you see in verse 3, uh, no, sorry, verse uh, 5, these converted Pharisees, they said, no, these people need to be circumcised. We don't care if they're Gentiles or not. They have to be circumcised. They have to conform to what we are. And Paul and Barnabas said, no, this is, this is a doctoral matter that really matters and no, you're wrong. And they said, no, we're right. And so in Antioch, they said, we, we can't just, we can't have this fester. We, we have to decide this. This needs to be nailed down. And so they sent Paul and Barnabas back to Jerusalem. Jerusalem was the mother church. Most of the apostles, or many of the apostles still live there. And, and that's where the, the largest flourishing church was. We're still in the early days. And these other churches were outliers from Jerusalem. And so they go back to Jerusalem, and it says in verse 6, and the apostles and elders came together for to consider the matter. And so we identify this as the very first presbytery meeting. Now, you might be confused, and many have been confused on this point. It says in verse 6, the apostles and elders came together. But we argue that the apostles that were present at that meeting, yes, they were apostles, an apostle was a very particular thing. You had to have seen the Lord previous to his crucifixion. And, well, I'm sorry, you had to have seen the Lord in person, post-resurrection at least, appearance of Christ. So the apostle Paul did not see Christ previous to um, the crucifixion, but on the road to Emmaus had an appearing of Christ. And so Paul is an apostle. So, there were the apostles, but the apostles were not present at this meeting by virtue of their authority as apostles. They were there at this meeting by the virtue of their authority as elders. The church, we understand, had been formed in such a way that these men had been elected, whatever, um, as elders in their churches. Now, I don't want to get all deep in rabbit trail here, but in verse 6, some of you might be familiar with this term, what's called the Granville Sharp Rule. 
So the apostles and elders, the definite article is on the word apostles, and the definite article is not on the word elders. It shows up that way in English, but it also shows up that way in Greek. And so the Granville-Sharp rule, the, the grammar, the Greek grammar of verse 6, indicates that the apostles and elders here were one in the same in authority in what they were coming together to, to discuss and to meet. Now, we learn in the rest of the passage, um, verse 13, for example, and, no, not verse 13. Sorry, I'm sorry. Go back to verse 2. Verse 2 is the one that has the Granville Sharp rule. So, when therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension, um, anyway, go to Jerusalem unto the apostles and elders about this question. So there's the Granville Sharp rule, shows grammatically that the apostles and elders, one and the same in authority. In verse 6, even though the article is not in English on the word elders, it is in Greek. And so there were elders that were not apostles, but the apostles were all elders. And we get that from the Greek of verse 2 and the Greek of verse 6 indicates that. And so the apostles did not have any higher authority. The apostles' vote didn't carry any more weight than anybody else's. They all met together to discuss this issue. We see in verse number 13, this is where 13 comes in, James spoke up. This is James, the Lord's brother. James seems to be or at least in Presbyterianism, we, in, we understand him to be the moderator of this first Presbyterian meeting. Somebody called the meeting to order. Somebody said, okay, let's open in prayer. Somebody said, okay, here's the issue that we need to talk about. Somebody was the chairman of the meeting. James was the one that was the chairman of that meeting, it seems. Um, Peter spoke up. Paul speaks here somewhere. Anyway, James uh, deals with this and comes down the decision, the, the vote and the decision. And so we learn from Acts 16 that these churches were interdependent on one another. They were not independent. The church in Antioch did not just say, look, we're just going to practice what we want to practice and forget y'all. They didn't have that attitude at all. There was an independency among them all. And then the ruling of that assembly... The ruling of this first Presbytery meeting was a binding decision on all of the churches. So we'll close here, verse 22. Then pleased it the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, uh, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabbas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. And so these letters were sent with the decision that was made at this Presbytery meeting. Skip down to verse 30. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they had gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they had read, they rejoiced for the consolation. They rejoiced in the fact a decision has been made. This, this is the, the verdict. This is the, this is the authority. This is, this is what we believe. This is what we practice. This is how we do things moving forward. So there's a crash course in Presbyterianism. A lot more questions, perhaps, that you might have. Um, 
And if you do, I'm happy to answer some of those. If there's some of the things I said you don't understand, well, why is it that way and not this way, then I'd be happy to answer those as well. So email me, text me, let me know, and we'll go through some of those. Well, let's close in prayer now. We're past time. Sorry. Our Father, we do thank you for uh, the fact that you have told us in your word uh, that we are to let things be done decently and in order. And we pray that you would help us as we try to understand the scriptures and what you have taught us. We pray for Pastor Kimbrough as he preaches to us this morning. We pray that you would fill him with your spirit and help him as he delivers your word. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.